it is time once again for us to take a long rest. joining us once again for another episode of A Long Rest. We have managed this time to get ourselves into Grom's Ale Forge, which is a remarkable tavern inn that we have decided to take a long rest in this week because we are also going to be reviewing towards the end the Loresmith's Ultimate Guide to Remarkable Inns and Their Drinks, which is an amazing book I will be talking about, as I said, later on. Uh, Grom's Ale Forge is one of the taverns within this place. So this is where we decided to take our long rest this week. We rolled up random characters as we did last week. This week, I am Drok Dronkill. I am a dwarfen fighter, a soldier, and a scout. I spend most of my days here in the alehouse as there is not much else to do unless I'm fighting or bleeding the enemy dry. As I said, I was a scout in the past, and as such, I'm a little bit wary of all of my so-called allies and friends out there. You never know who's going to be stabbing you in the back. I enjoy the alehouse here, the food is great, and Matilda's Firebok is probably one of the best brews to be had on this side of the mountain range. It's a fiery drink that'll put hair on your chest and in your beards. I have many of the wee lads attempt to challenge me to drink in contests. But I always drink them under the table. And who knows, maybe I'll be doing that today with my little halfling friend. No, I'm pretty sure the one short glass is about the size of a normal pint for him. So I'll have to give him a handicap, I'm sure. And that is my terrible impression of a dwarven fighter. <laughs> and uh, with me today, as I'm sure you know him well, is Virgil Nelson, who is the composer of the intro and outro music for all of the Adventuring Guild stuff, and uh, he's joining me today to talk about some of the music and audio making things you can do for audio you use in your tabletop games, anything like that, and we'll also be talking about ways to balance uh, homebrew material like races, classes, and whatnot. So I'll go ahead and let him introduce himself and uh, a little bit about the character that he is portraying today. Hey everyone, this is Virgil. Uh... Like Robert said, I am the the uh, on-call composer of the Adventuring Guild. Um, the random character I rolled up is Neda Legalo. He is a level 10 ha uh, lightfoot halfling rogue. He is a arcane trickster. Charlatan is his background. Um, he comes from a noble family, but for whatever reason might have happened, he has uh, fallen out of grace, or so has the family. Um, since then, I have been wandering around, uh, pickpocketing people that I find and doing what I can to acquire some riches. Uh, however, the goodness in my heart and the nobility in my blood tells me to give back to those who truly need, for someday I wish to reclaim my family's uh, noble lands and titles, and for that I'm going to need the people, so I take from the rich and give to the poor. For some reason, I ended up joining this group. The, the thought of money is just too compelling. I just had to go for the risk if there was money involved. And who knows, maybe I'll score big and be able to reclaim uh, my noble title. All right, before we get too much further into our cups here, drinking away at Grom's Ale Forge, I would just like to do a little bit of a personal side note here. Uh, I want to promote our charity game. Uh, once again, I know you've heard it several times, you're hearing it again. Uh, we will be running a 24-hour charity game through Extra Life, uh, which helps children's hospitals. Ours specifically will go to Children's Hospital of Omaha. Uh, it helps out kids. It's an amazing organization. Uh, my daughter is a patient of uh, Children's Hospital in Omaha. She has scoliosis, and they are a wonderful, wonderful hospital, a wonderful place to take her. 
take her, they make her feel safe, they make sure that she is comfortable, that she is laughing and smiling as much as possible because x-rays are no fun for a toddler and they do a remarkable job there. So I encourage everybody that can, that is able to, come out to Game on Games in Kearney, Nebraska and join us at 1 p.m. on June 16th. We'll be running all the way until June 17th at 1 p.m. I'm gonna be one tired DM, but I will be running the entire game. Uh, I haven't decided yet how we're gonna structure it as far as if I'm gonna be switching out people at different times, if we're going to kind of do a rolling cast when somebody dies, somebody jumps in. I haven't decided quite yet what we're gonna do, but um, that is going to be there. You can also listen to it. We're going to post the audio files up as quickly as we are able to. Unfortunately, due to the internet uh, speeds and whatnot, we are unable to live stream it, but we are going to do our best to get those audio files up as quickly as we are possibly able. So every time I take a five minute break to crack open a can and grab something to eat, whatever, we are going to upload those files onto the podcast. So you will be able to hear those. It'll be raw, unfiltered audio. I will come back later and clean them up for everybody. Uh, I'll leave all the content there, but I'll get rid of all as much of the background noise as I'm able to get rid of some of those awkward pauses where the party's like, oh God, left or right quarter, left, right, left, right, go straight. You know, that kind of a thing. So we will figure that out um, as it goes, but you can catch those as soon as we post them up and I will make a note on our Facebook, Patreon, and Twitter accounts uh, letting everybody know when that is happening. We will also have a Discord channel up at that point for this event. So everybody that is listening in online and whatnot can post some of the awesome stuff that they're hearing, they're thinking, uh, can do a thank you to anybody that if you want to make a donation and you want to say, hey, this goes to somebody, post it up there. I will read them out loud as soon as I'm able to, probably in that five minute break when we're switching over tracks and whatnot. I'll try and read off all of those. It'll be on the air, so everybody that listens will be able to hear that dedication of your donation and whatnot. The world that I will be running it in is actually the next little bit of info. We are starting an entirely new segment. Uh, it's a whole new show, a homebrew show for our Patreon members only. So it costs a dollar a month to listen to on our Patreon, but you're helping support the show and making this a much better podcast. Uh, the show is going to be called the Chaos Plan. It's a game where the odds may not always be in your favor. It's a homebrew game that we are doing. I'm starting, I started off episode one with uh, a lot of the character creation stuff, running backstories and whatnot, but all of the decisions the characters made were based off of the Taroka deck. Uh, drew those cards randomly, got the player's impressions, and then I drew those, and that's how we figured out our story and what happened and what went on. Uh, very much like Curse of Strahd with that Madame Ava card reading, but this time I had the players tell me what they thought the cards meant. What we use to determine those random factors will change every episode, so one week I may use the Taroka deck, I may use a tarot deck the next week, or dice, or a randomizer on the internet, or better yet, and I'm trying to figure out how to make this work, I'm going to try and use a Magic 8-Ball for one of these if I can find one of those retro things. I'm going to try my best to make sure that everything is completely random in chaos as much as possible. We will be following a linear storyline, so they will be working their way through quests and stuff like that, but the NPCs they meet, the treasure they may find, even the dungeon location will be determined by as many random factors as I am able to come up with. So listen to that. All of our stuff will go up on our website, obviously. We are also getting an Obsidian portal set up so that our viewers can log into that and see what the adventure is. We'll have character sheets up for viewing as well so people can see, okay, how did they get that 19 in their acrobatics check? Now you can see the modifiers and all that kind of stuff. You can see what weapons they're using, what magic items they may have, what spells they may have, everything like that. So please check that out called The Chaos Plan. Hopefully we will get it up yet this month. Uh, oh, I take that back. Hopefully we'll get it up in the month of June as I'm only one week away from June here uh, while we're recording. So look forward to that early June up on our Patreon. Look for us there and sign up. You're helping support us here and we appreciate every single last penny you guys donate. So thank you guys very, very much. All right, so uh, we'll go ahead and move on to the next section. 
So we'll be talking first about music, about audio making, about ambience, about using them in your games and different things you can do to incorporate them. Because what's a good long rest without at least a bard playing a lute or a flute? So go ahead, uh, Virgil, go ahead and tell us a little bit about how you got started with making all of this other than me beg, bribing, and stealing your help for the podcast. Um... Well, I'm a musician by actual trade. I'm a composer and a educator of music. So in my spree time, I like to compose and just use it as a re creative release uh, of sorts. And it was just something fun I could do. I love listening to uh, epic music and uh, openings of shows and movie trailers. And uh, half the time, it's not the show... The, uh, What's actually I'm actually watching on the trailer that's making me excited. The music just gets the blood going, and you can't help but get hyped for it just because of the music. And uh, for the podcast, I just thought something fun and epic and fulfilling that people might recognize and help lighten the mood or get the get the scene set for the players as well as the audience. Um, what the software I use currently is free software. It is MuseScore. Uh, you can find it on the internet. It's downloadable for free. Um, I'd like to at some point get something like Sibelius or Finale. Uh, they're both softwares I've used before. Uh, they offer a lot more options, but for a creative release and just to have a little bit of fun, uh, there's nothing wrong with MuseScore. You can do all kinds of things with it. For inspiration, uh, because all music is inspired somehow. Um, honestly, the best advice I have and what I honestly do most, more than anything, is just listen. Uh, video game music, uh, films, uh, on YouTube is a big one I do a lot. Uh, awesome composers. Uh, if you look up movie trailer composers, people like uh, Two Steps From Hell, listen to their music. It will get your blood going. It's so good. Um, also, epic music. Uh, is really good. In fact, search epic music in YouTube and you'll find some really fun stuff uh, of all kinds of moods and emotions and themes. And the other one that I find a lot of inspiration from is anime. Uh, I do watch anime and uh, a lot of the I know, right? Uh, it's not like I reference it at almost every episode of D&D. &D. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the music in there uh, really just is inspiring to a mood or a feel, even if it's not for the theme, but, you know, just to convey an emotion and bring it out more. Just, it's really good. If you want to create music or any kind of art for your game, do it. Uh, just be creative. Uh, have fun with it. Try it out. Uh, if you're thinking on the spot and you have an idea, record it too many times at work or I'm walking around and I have this idea and I'm like, oh, I'm going to remember that for later and I don't record it and I forget it 10 minutes later. So if you have a phone or any kind of recording device, just do a voice memo and it looks silly, but record yourself singing a theme or whatever it is and just save it and reference it later. I do that a lot with a lot of the podcast stuff is I'll have a thought and I'll stop what I'm doing and like voice memo. And I'll just sing to myself, and people will give me the weirdest look. But I'll voice, I'll just record it, and then I come back to my computer later. I listen to it, I laugh about how silly I must have looked or sounded back then. But go off of that little idea. Um, another big thing is trial and error. Just try it if you don't like it. Don't worry about it. Uh, change it. Figure out what's different. Honestly, mo a lot of what I do is trial and error. Uh, and the other one is second opinion. Get some criticism. I don't know how many times. <laughs> for the first podcast, I think I did 17 different or seven different versions of the first theme and emailed it to Robert or had him listen to it. He's like, I like it, but. Sorry, or, not sorry. Or like, that's cool. I don't like the instruments. I'm like, okay. And so I'll change it. And, but get a second opinion. Get some criticism because that's the best thing. Uh, even for the latest one I did, I just had Robert listen to it a little bit ago and he's like, I like it, but. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. It means you're improving and just getting better. And the other things, 
look on the internet. Look on if you're not a musician. If you're not a musician, look up like chord progressions. I mean, you can easily search chord progressions. Everyone knows that four chord song that all pop songs are. If that's a starting point, do it because it's a place to start, and you'll get better as you go. Uh, if you are a musician and you have like some music and you have like the musical score for it, look and listen to it at the same time. Really see what you're doing with the music and how it interprets. Because uh, a lot of times I'll look at music and I'll kind of get the basics of what it sounds like just by looking at it without actually playing it. Or I can look at it and be like, uh, that's not going to sound good or it's just not going to work very well. Um, and then listen to anything. Classical music, jazz, uh, search up an emotion and then music. And just kind of get the feel and look for the tropes. Uh, music theor uh, music trailers or music uh, movie trailers oftentimes do little tropes on like uh, their theor or in their uh, trailers to get emotion. Like suspense will do like a dun 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 and it just repeats over and over. But it just enough for some reason it gets you like what's gonna happen? I don't know. I can't wait. And it's it just look listen. Just absorb yourself in it, but be creative and have fun. That's the biggest thing. I enjoy composing for it because it gives me an outlet and something creative and something to do. All right. I know another question that a lot of people have, and you may have seen it on like Dice Camera Action or um, I know Crit Roll sometimes they do a little bit of that there too, but how can a character incorporate music into their actual game without, you know, a huge setup, a huge amount of anything. I know bards are the classic trope, but um, I know other classes can use it. I've actually uh, seen a couple of uh, characters use songs as their spell casting and they'll do a little ditty before they they cast a spell. How, how What's a way for somebody to kind of incorporate that in there practically without having to drag in a bunch of equipment? Uh, if you don't want a bunch of equipment, uh, in one of the first episodes of the podcast, I think it was the first ones, uh, with when I played the Bard College of the Maestro. It's um, very oak butt. Yeah, very an oak bottom. I was Thank close. You very much. Um, <laughs> uh, I tried doing this a little bit, and basically what I did was uh, I'd look up like my spells or some bardic inspiration, and it takes a little bit of time. I mean, in a campaign, you'll get to know the players as well as the characters they're playing. And if you want to make like a limerick, it helps a little bit when you know the characters and you can play off some inside jokes, take slots and notes. That helps a ton, take notes. Or if you just like want to give inspiration and you want to sing a song, look up your favorite pop tunes or whatever music you listen to and like, oh, I know that song by heart. Change the words around just a little bit. Uh, so if there's a name, switch it to the name of one of the characters or if it's a spell, uh, have a little fun with the spell and make the song about the spell and do something or just write down lyrics if you have no idea what you're going to do. Write down the lyrics of a song and just sing that in your game. Uh, just, but if you're going to be a bard and you're going to do it, be confident and just sell it. That's the best thing. Because uh, if you sing a song and you're like half-heartedly doing it, it's like, oh, you did, you you tried, good job. But if you can sell it, I know Sam Regal on Critical Role, when he does his songs, uh, especially in campaign one with like Scanlan, and you watch him, it's just, he is in it 100%. And it's so funny no matter what you do, or it's super inspiring. And it's like, that was amazing. But just sell it, no matter how ridiculous you think you might look just sell it just go for it i guess from that are there any other last parting words of advice um or anything like that before we switch into the new section for people that want to incorporate music more or write game music or anything like that and then do your little self-promotion plug because i know you just started up a patreon where people will hopefully be able to download your tunes as soon as you get them up um i guess any last words and stuff I mean, it just comes down to have fun, be yourself. Uh, when you're playing D&D, uh, most of the time, you're around friends and people uh, with you and uh, that you like, and it should be a safe place. And you can just feel free to just 
go outside the box. Have a little bit of fun. Uh, if anything, if you find out it didn't feel, you know, I've had a couple of moments where what I thought was, you know, like this is gonna be a super serious epic moment. We've had the table break down crying, laughing, and it was funny, but it was one of those, you could express yourself in a safe environment with friends, and then it becomes a joke, and you know, it's not something like, oh, remember that time? It turns into that one of those stories that when the campaign ends, like, remember when your character did this? And it's one of those immortalized things. And those are just so fun to have because you can retell them forever and all the people remember. So uh, have fun and just be yourself and go for it. It's D&D is a tabletop RPG where everyone can just be themselves and or be whoever they want to be. So be whoever your character is and sell it the best you can. All right, and then your shameless self-plug promotion. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, I have a Patreon, apparently. Um. <laughs> I almost spit on my beer. <laughs> Stuff like that. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, yeah, I have a Patreon now, and uh, I did it when I supported... Uh, the adventuring guild and whatnot, but uh, after a number, after a lot of convincing and uh, whatnot from Robert, uh, I decided to turn it into a creator account. And so, uh, as time goes by, I'll be posting up uh, the intro musics that I've done for the adventuring guild. If you guys want them, uh, I don't know how much anything I've. I just set it up, so it's a pretty basic, plain-looking, not very creative-looking uh, Patreon page. But I hope to eventually get it looking better, and I'll post the music if you guys want it. Uh, I made the music to have fun for people to use, so if you guys can use it, awesome. Let me know how it works for you, uh, and we'll just see what happens as we get more listeners and more people, and just go from there. Awesome. I know people enjoy it, especially, I mean, I've seen it on the couple of the reviews that we have. Uh, cue the epic loop music, you know, that kind of stuff. So hopefully that'll turn into uh, something there. All right, we will go ahead and break into the next section as the rest of our party is drinking. They're heavy in their cups. A couple of them have already leaned over the bar stools. They're looking like they're going to crash. So we're going to go ahead and move on to, speaking of leaning over your bar stools, balancing. But not over bar stools. We're going to talk about in-game balancing and what you can do to help create a class, a race, a sub-race, a subclass, a magic item, whatever you can think of to create for a D&D game. We're going to talk about how to balance it and make sure that it is actually something that isn't going to totally ruin everybody's day and everybody's game. So I've got, I posted the question up on Patreon and we had a couple of responses over the Patreon and a couple of responses over the emails and I'm going to read a couple of the highlights from those for you guys right now and then uh, we'll get Virgil's thoughts on it and go from there. I figured since we're called the Homebrew Review, we should probably talk about homebrew and balancing and what we notice about it. Yes, we're a little bit rules lack, so there's a little bit of that kind of thing that we let slip. But for the most part, we try and stay as true to the game that we're able to in order to give you an actual idea of what is balance and what is not. So uh, the first uh, bit here comes from Micah Holmes, and he talked about uh, detect balance being an extremely useful tool for homebrew races. Uh, it is 100%. We've used it uh, for our stuff here to kind of get a breakdown of points. It assigns points to different values on abilities, on skills, on proficiencies, all that kind of stuff. It puts a point value to those and then it measures it against what's in the player's handbook. So definitely do check that out if you're making a homebrew race. Uh, it's a little bit tricky depending on what kind of extra bonus skills you give as it doesn't always accurately calculate those. Um, you know, something as simple as you have double the jump height and length can be extremely game-breaking in certain situations. So it's a little bit hard to calculate, but it does give you a good idea as far as Okay, plus two in charisma, plus one in strength, you know, whatever it may be. It kind of helps balance that out a little bit. Um, I know I've used it quite a bit. Uh, Virgil, I know, has used it for some of his stuff before the podcasts. Um, what, have you used it uh, personally any time in the recent history that you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, actually, I used it for uh, the Damn Fear uh, Sorcerer 
uh, that I did. Uh, that was really nice because, you know, the, like, advantage to death saves, but also sunlight sensitivity. I mean, it has pluses with, like, you get advantages of this, but sunlight sensitivity is a negative. Yeah. And so you might have some really powerful abilities, but then that negative pulls you back. So you might be like, you know, I have these god powers, but in the sunlight, you can't see anything. Well, <laughs> that changes everything. So you might have some cool abilities, but if you can't see anything, the balance, the detect balance thing just is, it is nice. Uh, you just got to be careful with it because uh, you can find loopholes through it. And uh, when you're creating and say, oh, if I give this and this and this and this, but then I add this, sometimes those negatives don't outweigh the positives. So just be very careful with that. I actually had the major negative happen to me in one of Virgil's first games he ever ran with me as a player. Uh, I played a half dryad that was vulnerable to fire damage, and very first session he killed me outright, 100%. And I felt so, so you, bad. <laughs> so definitely check those out because vulnerability to fire damage, and uh, you stack that on top of if you are killed by fire damage, you you don't get death saving throws. You're perma dead. That was a huge detriment to the class and all the other abilities put together weren't quite enough to outweigh it. So just be careful with those because they, they can bite you, but that is definitely detect balance is probably your first step for a homebrew race to make sure it's balanced. Um, and then we'll go ahead and keep talking about races a little bit before we start that. I know Braden, one of the major supporters of the podcast, who's a Patreon, who's going to be on an upcoming episode as this is going to air before that episode comes on. Um, he wrote a huge list of some really amazing things on how to help. Oh, in fact, the damn fear sorcerers from that game. So yeah, exactly, the damn fear sorcerers from that game. So you the won't actually game, see it. So you won't. But uh, I know he put up together a huge list of things that we'll talk about as far as classes, as he is a bestseller on DMS Guild. So uh, for races and whatnot, another good thing to go through is seriously, just look at the player's handbook. Go through, look through, or Volos Guide look through it, say, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't give a total of plus five to stats because nothing in the player's handbook does so. I think the max is about a plus three in anything. Uh, the only race I think that gets more than a three is the uh, uh, half-elf. That's it's true. a plus two in one in con and then a plus one in two other stats. And regular humans get a plus one in everything, but yeah. that kind of caps everything out. Yeah, they, they don't, don't have any, anything, anything else. else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, um, yeah, and then even some of the monstrous races in Volos Guide, like uh, Bugbear and whatnot, or Fearbulk being able to have that 10-foot reach, uh, that's really powerful. So it kind of offsets a lot of their other abilities. But seriously, just look at the Player's Handbook, look at Volos Guide, look at the bestsellers on the DMS Guild, look at Unearthed Arcana. Um, while those are a little bit unbalanced and unearthed arcana, they come pretty darn close to being ready to print material as far as balance is concerned. Just compare them. It's the easiest way to do it. And then play test, obviously. Um, if you're writing sub races, make sure it fits. Uh, I don't know how many times I've seen really weird sub races that are just, they're really neat, but they're too much. I've seen um, Genasi is one of them that always kills me. There's the four elements, and then people try to stack on other strange forces and elements and stuff. There's some really good ones out there, but there's some really weird ones with how how does that even work out. Um, then there's some really funny ones, like the dork, uh, yes. dwarf-orc uh, combination, which is always hilarious. Uh, but yeah, just, just compare them to what's out there. Uh, it's your best bet. Moving on to classes and... Um, archetypes and whatnot for previously existing uh, classes. Brayton has a lot to say on this as he is a bestseller uh, with his industrialist. Uh, so some of the things that he writes are balancing homebrew subclasses is fairly straightforward. He comes up with an idea that isn't represented already in one of the Wizard of the Coast subclasses and then uses the same official subclasses as a guideline for balance. So once again, you know, you just Take what's there and build off of it, um, as far as subclasses is concerned. Balancing actual full 100% 1 through 20 classes is really difficult, and he puts really in all caps so you know it's a big deal. Um, and it is. I've attempted it. It's not, not worth trying for a newbie. Uh, don't, don't try it. 
uh, unless you really know what you're doing, or you're doing it just for your friends that don't care if you have a god or a commoner by the end of it. Um, so it takes a ton of redoings, a ton of drafts, uh, numerous updates after their release, even after they're quote-unquote done. Um, he gives a total of five real tips that he can't that he gives out for those that want to attempt it. So, first one is choose which level this class gains subclass features. Uh, he uses the player handbook to find out which official classes have subclass progression similar to the homebrew class that he's making, and then he goes through and and matches those. He uses the monk as an example. Um, Go through the monk abilities it gains from level 1 to 20 and added class features to your class that are comparable in power to those. So use a very similar progression um, to what is already in the book and just try and match that. If you're doing a very physically powerful class that isn't going to get a whole lot of fluff, just a lot of beat-em-up, follow the fighter. If you're doing something that's very mystic, very magic oriented, you know, choose something along the lines of warlock, sorcerer, or wizard, depending on how you want to do it. Um, just, you know, follow what's there and pick those same progressions. Uh, another thing that he uh, mentions, uh, tip number two, is take advantage of damage per round uh, of each class into account. So take the average damage. You know, if you're a martial person and they've got something with great weapons, roll up a bunch of 2d6s. Take the average damage on that. Make sure that if you are creating some sort of class ability that mimics that, like a smiting type ability, make sure it fits. Um, you know, don't, don't give it a ton of extra damage. He uses the Bard for an example. There are cases when this isn't true, however. Say, for instance, your class focuses on a lot of control and utility, such as the Bard. Go off average damage per round of the Bard, but give it homebrew class abilities that will make it competitive with a Bard. When you're making those kind of classes, the support classes, the healing classes, pick one that's similar within what you've already seen. Uh, his third tip is don't forget to add ribbon features to the class. These end up being as important as the main class features. A class without a fun little flavor ability is boring. Once again, all caps, and I totally agree with that. Yes. Too many classes are focused on combat, combat, combat. I have this overcharge ability that gives me this bonus to crit, and this elemental damage counts as magical, cuts through armor. It's too much. Give me some fluff. Give me a bonus to charisma checks when dealing with this ability. Give me, if you're making a tech-heavy class, give me a bonus to deciphering those mechanical adventure inventions. Maybe an intelligence uh, advantage on intelligence rolls in order to copy down the diagram. Something along those lines. Um, his fourth one that he posts, his fourth tip, is post the finished product on the Unearthed Arcana Reddit or another forum that has active creators. You're gonna get a lot of feedback. Uh, a lot of those guys are simply there to help you. You know, it may seem like they're tearing your product down, but no, they, they want to make it good because they wanna play it. You know, everybody wants to try something new. I've got an entire Google Drive devoted to over 80, 90 gigs worth of homebrew material, material I've compiled for the podcast. People want to see it, want to play it. Um, his fifth and final tip is playtest, playtest, playtest. And again, playtest, playtest, playtest. This cannot be emphasized enough. Uh, Braden says, I released the Industrialist on the DMS Guild over a year ago and have been making constant minor updates ever since. The class has only just gotten to the point where I'd consider it close to being a polished and balanced product. He also says that he was able to see where the changes needed to be made because of one of the players that took a big interest in the class, rolled up an industrialist as soon as it was released. Uh, he is also still playing that industrialist. And he has been played, and he says that playtesting is the best way to balance anything you homebrew. Again, don't be set in your ideas because the class is going to look fairly different after four or five updates of playtesting. I agree 100%. I don't know how many subclasses I've ended up redoing. I know, Virgil, yeah. you're, you've tackled several that have been extremely unbalanced and trying to do them, and it's just... Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. It's it's something. 
his last thing that he would like to say is um, balancing on monsters and stuff like that. He shares that he balances monsters uh, it fairly simply. Basically, the CR rating of the creature, you just kind of take that and look at official monsters that are close to it. That's exactly what we did on the Final Fantasy uh, section and all of my homebrews that I'm going to be doing upcoming, and just calculate them. The Wizards of the Coast posted up how to calculate CR ratings in groups and certain numbers, just do it. Uh, take into mind always pack tactics or anything that combines multiple monsters together because that will change what their CR rating is in large groups. And if you do stuff like flanking and whatnot, makes a big difference too. But that is a majority of what was posted on the Patreon. For the emails, I heard much of the same. Uh, they just re-emphasized playtesting, Throw it up for criticism. Don't get offended when they tear it apart and tell you it's crap because they, a lot of people know what they're talking about. You know, don't take it too hard. Everybody wants a final product that's polished, that's ready to go. So Virgil, what all have you done to, as far as balancing, as far as creating, as far as all of that, what, talk a little bit about what you've done with that. As far as creating classes and balancing, I'm still in the works on one that I've really been doing is if anyone ever's ever played like Borderlands, uh, the Necromancer, uh, Gage the Necromancer. Tiny Tina! Yeah. Uh, Gage the Necromancer from Borderlands 2. I've been, I loved playing her and I've been working on this class and its archetypes and I found some online that have been unfinished or just com just not quite done or just not balanced by any stretch um, and when looking through some stuff I've also found be very careful when you try and turn a video game character or like an RPG character into a tabletop character it does not work uh, very well um, <laughs> uh, that character in the video game who can kill a thousand people a game you know twelve 13 hit combos without anything. You don't get 12 13 hit combos in D&D. It just doesn't happen. Dynasty Warriors Faerun edition. It basically walk through and just underdark. <laughs> Solo it. I got this. Uh, but uh, think about what you want. What are the main abilities? The main focuses. What do you want out of this character? Um, with the Necromancer, Death Trap. Death Trap is awesome. I love summoning Death Trap. So one of the big things was, how do you use Death Trap? Well, Death Trap's an ultimate ability. So do you want it on a recharge, a short rest, or a long rest? Because he shouldn't just be out there all the time. He's not in the game. So finding a balance in that and just getting the basic class. Borderlands is nice in that it offers the different uh, trees of... Uh, like Anarchy, um, the Best Buddy one, and a couple of, you know, one more. But picking each of those doesn't change the overall class. It should change how you play it. Uh, so, something like uh, the Fighter. The Fighter is a great class for this. Or the Monk. Honestly, actually, the Monk might be a better one. Uh, if you want to be a Monk, like uh, in the handbook, the open hand monk. That dude goes out and kills stuff. Just, he does not care about, he gets in your face, punches you to death. That's how he works. Uh, if you wanna do something like subtle, like uh, jumping from shadow to shadow, the shadow uh, monk is, uh, yeah, the way of the shadow, is, uh, you know, very stealthy, like a ninja, going from shadow to shadow, getting up behind your enemy and striking quick and then getting out of the way. And then there's the way of the four elements, which is, you know, elemental bending, you know, I launch burning hands at you, because now I have ranged abilities as far as my key goes. It's such, the monk is a monk at its core, but how do you want to play it should be the subclasses. And I see a lot of this happen in a lot of games where uh, it's either they're too similar or the archetype completely breaks off from the main point of the class. The archetype should, your archetype shouldn't destroy your main class ability. So to be very careful about that. But, yeah, no, I agree 100%. Yeah, and then just like Brain said, play test it. 
Once you have, when you have your idea, show it to a friend. Uh, see what they think, and they might say, "This is cool. It's really powerful, or it's not powerful enough." Then play test it. Uh, I know a couple of times, uh, it was just a little one shot. Hey, I just want to do a combat encounter. That's all we're gonna do is one combat encounter. See how this works. And you know, you might just wipe the floor with your opponents and be like, "It needs to be toned back a little bit." because that was a deadly encounter that you didn't even get hurt in, or vice versa. The other thing I really think is cool is when you think about the main focus of your class, make your detriment the opposite. Uh, the Barbarian is a great one. A Barbarian runs in, no armor, and smashes. Barbarians smash, that's all they do, really well. But they have, a, traditionally, a low AC. They get resistance to damage, but they just have a huge hit point max, and they have resistance, but they get hit constantly. They should, because that's how their mechanics work, is they have low uh, low armor class, so they get hit a lot, but they do a lot of damage. A wizard is super powerful. I mean, they just are from the back. They launch fireballs and meteor swarms. You should be a threat, but wizards usually have very low AC. They don't have a lot of armor and weapons because they focus on magic. Glass cannons. The glass cannon. So your glass cannon class should have, you know, very powerful offensive or utility, but they shouldn't have high defense. Or if they, you do give them high defense, there should be a penalty to their offense. Uh, a monk is honestly pretty powerful, but they don't strike super hard. They strike very fast and often. And but the mobility, they can mo run. Yeah, yeah, they have super mobility, and they have decent offense and decent defense, but it could be, it's not going to match the fighter or the barbarian, but their mobility is so ridiculous. They fit into that niche little spot, and think about that when you make your class. This is what I wanted to do. What should be the detriment? You shouldn't have the paladin who can attack six times in a row doing D12s and have an AC of 30. It, it, it should not ever happen. <laughs> I don't know. You might want that during the Tarrasque challenge we do later on, but I get what you mean. Touche. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just think about what is your class's main ability? What? Why did you make the class? Where can I pull a detriment to it? Or where can I make a weakness? Because I think weaknesses, even in when you roll characters, the low stats are the fun ones. Uh, because they lead to so much fun stuff and to situations just like your class. Every warrior knows, every true trained fighter knows their weakness. And so build that weakness up. Make it hard to get to, but it should still be there. I agree completely. And what you said about making video game characters into D&D is extremely difficult. Same thing if you pick any character, movie characters. I mean, Avengers, you know, any of those superheroes or anime some of the crazy stuff like i know they make the sun soul monk is the dbz monk but it's dragon ball z you just can't match that power level don't attempt it and even some books power level over 9000 um my wife and i are really big into iron druid chronicles by kevin hearn and she is undertaking the task of making a druid based off of those books but it's so different that it's a, it has to be a whole new class. There isn't really a good way to fit it into the current one. And it's just, it's too much. It's a handful. It's not anything that's going to be done soon or be anywhere near balanced when it's done. Uh, same thing, I know Micah, who has been on the show multiple times, has played lots of characters based off books. Uh, he did the Hellblazer based off of Constantine, which isn't necessarily a book. But um, there's also the... Fury Crafter, which is a Jim Butcher Jim Butcher book, um, that is, or the Fury Crafter is based off of a character in one of Jim Butcher's novels, and that one also, I don't even want to know how much time went into that, trying to create all the small nuances, the small little things that make it like the book, because there's just so much information there, it's, it's impossible to match at all. Yeah, agreed, and like, with some video game characters, like, there are some that I think would be super fun or honestly might work well but at what point do you lose how you know they have you know page upon page upon page of abilities how do you narrow it down to 20 levels or if exactly. you if you do 
what are you losing for it? Like, I can think of a couple characters where, you know, they're more, they're a very upfront heavy, you know, sword and shield, and they have spells and they have healing, similar to a paladin, but not. But at what point are you giving up your damage output for support, support healing or any kind of support thing? You're giving up damage for support or magic for damn you know at some point you you're pulling in too many directions and you're going to end up with a instead of one class that's really good at something you're going to have a mediocre class that's mediocre at every it's not really good yeah. at everything it's but not great at anything you know it's just exactly. kind of a meh class one class i would love to make and i've seen archetypes that are close to it um, is the Harry Dresden style of wizard. Uh, my favorite book series of all time, uh, The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher as well. Um, I would 100% love to make a class based upon that, but it's too varied. There's too many options available. It's not something that would be easy to quantify. You could make a character as a class, but you could not encompass that magic system, that whole book, into a single class. Just like you said, it's too much from levels yeah. 1 through 20. Unless you break them up into archetypes. Exactly, yes. At that point, then you're giving up two of the two or three or however many aspects of your character you've divided into, into I can only do one, or maybe you can do all of them, but you only specialize in one, and the others are pretty much worthless as far as exactly uh, what they do, or in comparison to what the other one can do. Exactly. I've seen a lot of homebrew out there, and I know you have too, that one archetype, you can tell that was their favorite. That was the yes. one they spent their time on, and the rest is like, I, I, I filled the pages. You know, I needed four pages, I made four pages. I only needed one, but I filled the with random text. So I, yeah, that, that is always one thing to watch out for. We'll go ahead now and switch subjects over from classes, races, and monsters to magic items and spells. This is an area where things can get very complicated and very overpowered very quickly. It always happens. I have been guilty of it, and it has ruined a campaign or two that way because magic items were just too powerful. So one of the things that I would suggest 100%, broken record here, check what's written. Look and yes. see what's out there. Don't just make it up without any kind of inspiration or at least any kind of referencing beyond what's in your own head because it will always come out wrong I, a thousand times for me. And one of the hardest things about magic items are magic items that grow with you. These are the ones that have caused me the most headaches but are also my favorite to craft. Um, I know for all my homebrew games, and you guys are going to get to see this hopefully in an upcoming segment, we've got teaser towards the end, so listen all the way through. <laughs> um, magic items that grow with you. I love the idea of a level 1, level 3, level 4, whatever, really early game magic item that starts off at uncommon quality, roughly. You know, it adds a d4 to damage. It gives you dark vision out to 60 feet, or 30 feet. Uh, Something along those lines, something very simple, very overlookable, but then when you jump a tier play, when you complete some big quest, when you dump all the loot you stole from the rest of the party on a blacksmith of renowned ability, will upgrade with you. Not majorly, but enough to keep it relevant through the whole game, so that one attune slot that you've sacrificed for it doesn't end up getting wasted at some point. Uh, I know, Virgil, you've got a lot to say on this subject as far as magic items that level up and everything because, I, well, I'll just let you explain it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> a really good reference for uh, the magic items that grow with you. Uh, if you look up the vestiges from the Tal'Dorei uh, campaign book that Matt Mercer wrote, um, it breaks down each of the vestiges, but also like shows how they progress, and it's really interesting i mean they're they're very powerful items but they grow a little bit or maybe they have their one main ability but it gets more powerful as you go and he has it where you can do it either by experience points or by level um or the one i like is when uh something roleplay happens when a shining moment for that character happens and you're like yes 
that should allow it. Such as, for example, if you have this magic sword uh, or whatever, and you have like different pathways for it, and an ally goes down, and in a fit of rage, you charge the enemy instead of if you normally play like a cowardly character, but you watch your friend fall in combat, and so you take your sword and just charge the enemy. Awesome, that is a cool role play thing that you can now reward with, instead of extra experience, make that sword more powerful. Give it something extra and make it cool and rule of cool it. I mean, it just could be really fun and do whatever is in your imagination. Um, so look up the vestiges, they're really interesting. Uh, some of them are more powerful than others, but ultimately your magic item should not change your character. That's how you know when your magic item is too powerful. When your magic item completely changes how you play your character. Um, for example, uh, in one of uh, our homebrew games that we used to do, there are two, well, two or three of them that were ridiculous. I'm going to say all three of them. Our cleric had this magic item called the Rays of Light. And they are super cool. They're like these tattoos all on her body that she could invoke for extra power depending on uh, how she needed her gods or her divine power to be uh, influenced. And uh, this goes back to the one of those, it looks cool on paper or sounds cool, looks cool. Play testing it is so needed. Um, because uh, you'd roll basically a religion check to see what tier of power you would get. And if you just took proficiency in religion and rolled really more than a 10 on your die, basically, you could hit the upper tier and my God, it was, it was ridiculous. We could literally just take any damage. Don't worry about AC. Just take all the damage. Every round we'd get healed. Uh, crazy, because she'd constantly hit the highest tier constantly and my gosh we played once a week once every two weeks and you were modifying it almost every week toning it back just a little just a little just a little but and that was a cool item uh another one is uh the nine lives stealer which was a sword where if it took the soul if you defeated your enemy you took its soul and if you had so many souls you got a soul shard and each soul or gave us passive perk uh, and then you could release them. Well, they just never released the souls, so they kept these constant perks, and it just turned into you could never miss, basically, mm -hmm. and you could pretty much kill anybody in two, three hits. And it was just so powerful uh, as far as that goes. Then you did some story stuff to kind of... Uh, some narrative to... <laughs> Which was really I cursed cruel. them. It was cruel. I cursed them to a massive quest. It was cruel, but uh, basically to start spending those souls so that you couldn't keep the passives. Um, and then another overpowered one was honestly my wizard staff, which could, uh, which I had over the course of the campaign, I'd learn uh, more about the staff and its lore because it was a legendary item. And uh, I could, I didn't have all its power. I had to unlock it by learning and uh, experiencing. And you had to strip enchantments, I believe. Yeah, eventually we turned yeah. it into strip enchantments and I could only strip so many levels worth of enchantments and the more powerful the magic item I stripped from was uh, the more levels. And so if I stole, took, stripped a legendary item, I'd have like seven of my nine slots taken. So that helped tone it back a little bit. But then magic items are great for combat like that. There are some that could be so fun for uh, like role play uh, that can still benefit you, but in a role play and investigative ex exploration way instead of just combat, you had a book that you'd roll percentile die to see what information it had. And it was this book of all information but it would randomly generate what information you had. So you had to be really lucky to figure out, well, I need to learn about this type of weapon. Well, I rolled about spells. Well, I can't get anything. I'll have to wait till the next day. But it had all this information. It was really fun. And then the floating head. 
I yes. love the floating head. Totally stole that from uh, the Dresden Files books, but Bob the Skull, anybody that's read it, that that yeah. was one of my favorite magic items I've ever created. Yeah. Bob the Skull was fun, or could have been fun. I didn't pick that one, but that could have been really fun the way you explained it to me after I picked the staff, and I was like, no! <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, but, yeah, with your magic items, it shouldn't change your character. It should bolster your character in a way, or if you make an item, bolster it to its class abilities. Uh, one item I thought would be really fun to make, and I just haven't done it because I haven't had any characters to do it for, is basically like monk arm wraps or monk armor or beads that give you extra key points. And it's just a little thing, but it bolsters that, that uh, ability pool and lets you use more of your... You can do more flurries of blows. You can do your special abilities. It's very passive, or you can uh, use it, you know, you get that passive bonus as well as an activation where you can, you burn key points, you burn X number of key points every round to get more speed, more damage, but you take like a level of exhaustion afterwards. But, you know, it's a very powerful burst activation, but the passive is kind of the cool thing about it. So it doesn't change your gameplay. It allows you to explore more with your character. Exactly, and that's always one part that's been very hard. On all those magic items cre I created, I had a crit penalty and benefit. Uh, it would roll on the magic item table if you crit failed or uh, crit hit, and, or on the wild surge table from the wild magic sorcerer. And so it was a neat little either detriment or perk, but it didn't come up come up enough to really balance it. All right, so we will go ahead and we've talked a lot about the magic item side of things, so we'll go ahead and move on now to spells. I have not personally homebrewed a lot of new and unique spells. Most of the quote-unquote homebrewed spells I have made have been through channel casting, having multiple casters casting different spells to create different effects, which is more along the lines of rule of cool than it is homebrew. Uh, or doing something along the lines of changing the ability of the spell. So taking a typically a spell like um, Mold Earth, and if you have somebody that wants to cast Mold Earth and somebody that wants to cast Shape Plant, which is from the Sprouting Chaos uh, player packet. I'm not sure who wrote it. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But Sprouting Chaos has a uh, spell called Mold Plant, and using that mold earth, mold plant, and druid craft to make land fertile, or casting a spell that would normally only do affect one person, and you have two people cast it at the same time, and I go ahead and say, okay, two people are willing to sacrifice these spell slots, I'll give them a bonus person that is affected by the spell. Or three people casting it, okay, now you can affect five people, something along those lines. But as far as actually writing a brand new spell, I haven't really done it as there are a thousand different things out there for it, such as the Tome of Spells. It has a bunch of crazy spells that you wouldn't think you'd need. One of my favorites that I always bring up is Alter Instrument. It's a bard spell, and it allows you to change your instrument into any other instrument, which I think is really cool. It's totally fluff flavor text, but I like that idea of the one-man band, essentially. You can change your lute into a horn, into a dulcimer, into a drum, just shifting it around, and I think that's really cool. So I don't know, Virgil, have you had any real experience with homebrewing spells? Uh, a little bit when I played uh, my lore master from the Unearthed Arcana, but it wasn't so much homebrewing the spells as their innate ability to change damage type and uh, ability save. Uh, that's about the most I do, honestly, is, you know, I want a burning hands, but I want it to be electrical. So it's electrical hands. <laughs> uh, or things like that, changing damage type, changing the save on it to something else and calling it a different spell. I mean, there are so many, but there are so many spells it's hard to think of. The Toma spells, like I said, is page upon page, I guess my favorite spell, and that is actually a cantrip called Fiery Eyes. Yes, I remember yeah, that one. That was a jerk one. Yes, it was. Uh, you basically concentrate. It's a concentration-based one, but your eyes, and if you're a melee person, it's 
overpowered. Um, but basically, if an enemy can see your eyes or looks into your eyes, uh, they have to make like a save or they're like stunned or some ridiculous. Yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's yeah. been too long since we played that campaign. But basically, if you're not from fighter and the enemy's looking at you, they have to make the save. And so, it's stupid. It's it really is. But it was really fun. Yeah, and I, I remember now one of my favorite support spells, uh, totally broken, called Chant. And as long as I maintained concentration on it, uh, it allowed for, like, you gain one point of health every single round. Or something along those lines. So it was like, as long as you were chanting the spell, if one of your allies, and it was an area-type deal, so if one of your allies fell to the ground, you know, hit zero hit points, as long as you maintain concentration, it didn't matter if all four of your allies fell, that next round, they each had one point of health. So, I, I there, yeah, a bunch of spells in there that were really neat and really cool. Um, and then, you know, it kind of ties back into magic items a little bit. Yeah. A lot of the spells we created were actually effects of magic items, basically. Yeah. Uh, one thing to remember with spells is that by their very nature, it even says this in the book or somewhere, uh, spells by their very nature break the rules of the game. And not majorly, but they do. Like, you find a random item. Identify. I now know what it is. <laughs> I can't find magic item. Detect magic. I found it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's... Spells by their very nature change the rules. Be very careful when you make them that you don't give too powerful of a rule changer to too low of a character. Don't give Meteor Swarm to your level 1 wizard bad things are going to happen yeah. to themselves and everyone around them. <laughs> exactly. I don't remember how many times Comprehend Languages has totally screwed me out of every secret message, puzzle, yes. language, role-playing encounter I have ever done. Yeah, every last time Comprehend Languages has bit me. And I don't know why I don't remember that you guys always pick that spell. It's like Magic Missile. Yeah. Why would you not? Yeah, well, like, identify. Same yes. thing, like, in my games, like, I tried to tempt you with cursed items, and I'd give it to you, and you're like, I identified, and I'm like, darn it! <laughs> really? Exactly. Don't do it to this one, please. Exactly. <laughs> Forget you have it. Don't prepare it for the day. Yeah. But, no, yeah, I agree 100%. Spells do, by their very nature, just change the entire game. All right, thank you, Virgil. While he goes up and talks to Grom Oakencracker, the uh, innkeeper of this establishment, I'm going to go ahead and review something in this section of the DM recommendations. So the book that I used, obviously, from the beginning is uh, Remarkable Inns and Their Drinks, which is by Loresmith. This book is absolutely fantastic for some amazing inns and taverns and just creating your own with drinks and special effects that meals and drinks may have. Uh, just looking through this book, uh, the inns that they provide right off the bat are, are incredible. They not only give the name and staff and drinks of the different inns, but they also list how many rooms the establishment has, what kind of wealth does it have, are the prices high or low, is it a secure place, is it a safe place, is it how much authority does the innkeeper have? Is he kind of a pushover or is he a no crap attitude type innkeeper? Uh, they also talk about services that are offered, the talent that can be found there, and the disposition. Like Grom's Aleforge, the one that we're using for this episode of A Long Rest, uh, they are very unwelcoming to elves and wizards and sorcerers they are intolerant of. So it's, it's a very interesting book to pick up and to add into any of your games. Um, in this book, one of my favorites is the Moongate Cottage. I am super crazy about the Fae and all the craziness that comes with it. And the fact that you have to recite words to activate a portal to get there is just mind-blowing to me. I had never thought about having a chant-based activation for a portal simply to get to a tavern or get to an inn. Um, the rumors and secrets that lie within this place are amazing. There's all sorts of things that are part of this Moongate Cottage section there. The staff is extremely varied, ranging from a very obvious female failing druid, uh, as well as a fa uh, fairy dragon, all the way to the complete opposite side of the spectrum, which is the dwarven paladin that happens to be residing there as well. Uh, it's just absolutely 
amazing and astounding how much detail went into this book. Uh, in section number two, they talk about bringing your ends to life, where it reads about all the different levels of what each of those descriptors of the inn have. Like the disposition, it describes, well, if the disposition is high or low, what does that mean? It talks about the influence of the innkeeper, uh, how much he is able to get away with uh, regionally. Um, talks about the security, uh, how likely is it for unfortunate events to strike. Uh, everything from bar brawls to games of dice ending badly to known prospectors getting into an argument. Uh, it's extremely varied. Uh, and what all happens with that, the wealth and prices uh, up to 50% lower than what normal prices are, all the way up to 300% higher than normal prices. Uh, lodging services, obviously those are fairly self-explanatory. What is allowed and what services are provided? Is it healing? Is, it, is there a messenger there you can get to? Can you hire people here uh, to do jobs for you? Uh, it's, it's just really astounding. A lot of the descriptors of the food are sound good enough that I would love to take a drink of some of these. Like the Sun Sword Ale. A light and refreshing ale infused with wildflowers that tastes like a brilliant sunrise. I mean, they're just, it's very non-typical and I love it. Uh, outlandish dishes that have all sorts of strange tastes and descriptors written into them. Uh, teas, magical draughts, games uh, of all varieties. They also talk about different songs and tales. So I know Virgil, we were talking about that a little bit. Uh, as far as adding in songs into games, this is an amazing way to do that. They have an entire two, three pages dedicated to nothing but different songs and tales uh, that you can sing and, and bring into your game as far as a DM perspective. Uh, and then also there's a whole section to creating your own in. Uh, a bunch of random charts that you can roll on or just pick as you like. Uh, they, they are truly exceptionally detailed. Like uh, this one here talks about 100 story hooks for your in. And I'm gonna just go ahead and roll here. And I got a 44. So the one of the story hooks it says here, all the dogs in the city gather near an old building howling incessantly. And, and just they're crazy. Everything from pirates to the sky opening and raining blood and like it, it, it is truly a ridiculous amount of content that is perfect for any aspiring DM, uh, for any DM to just take and add into their game. So I would highly, highly, highly recommend Remarkable Inns and Their Drinks by Loresmith. You can get the PDF or the uh, hard copy online at loresmith.com. I'll have a link to this book in the show notes. Uh, it is definitely worth every single penny I spent on it. And it wasn't a significant amount of pennies, I assure you. Well worth the price. All right, we will go ahead the rest of our party is laying unconscious on the floor. We have to drag them back up to their rooms. We thank you all for joining us, and we hope you will meet us here next time for another long rest. Mm -hmm.